and welcome to Judgment Calls. I'm David Levy, director of the Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke Law School. My guest today is Judge Marjorie Rendell. She is a senior judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, where she has served since 1997. She first was appointed to the United States District Court in Philadelphia in 1994. She is also a former First Lady of Pennsylvania. In that role, she became interested in civics education in grade and high schools. She is now president of the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Education. The Rendell Center promotes civics education and engagement uh, in Pennsylvania, and I think in other places as well. We'll hear about that. Judge Rendell has become a forceful and influential voice for preserving and explaining our democratic values and institutions. Thank you so much for joining me here this morning, Judge Rendell. Thank you, let's, David. My pleasure. Let's start by talking about your your very interesting and impressive career. You were a bankruptcy practitioner and a woman partner at a major Philadelphia law firm in the 70s and 80s. And that combination, I think, was quite rare. How how, uh, how rare was it? And how did those experiences <laughs> Uh, come to shape you uh, later as a judge? Well, it, it really was quite rare at the time and unique. I was the first woman in Philadelphia uh, to be engaged in the practice of bankruptcy law. Uh, and I guess I, how it shaped me, I learned how to be in a room full of men, that's for sure. Uh, but bankruptcy back then was not the sophisticated practice that it is today. When I first started practicing uh, bankruptcy law in the mid-70s, we were still under the regime of the old Bankruptcy Act, and the code didn't come into effect till 1978. So I was really in the, in the forefront of what later became a very sophisticated practice. But I think what I really learned, uh, in addition to learning how to negotiate, because that's a lot of what you do in bankruptcy practice, but I learned a lot about people, uh, about people's needs bankruptcies kind of like the emergency room of of law practice so you see people at their worst in some situations um, I also represented a lot of banks so you kind of understood what commercial people had uh, you know what their needs were so it really it it really did shape me greatly in terms of uh, the, the people aspect as well as the intellectual aspect of the practice of law uh, well, you were first appointed to the district court, where, where I also served, and you weren't there very long, but but three or four years, and then right. then you were elevated to the court of appeals. You know, so you've seen the trial court, and uh, you, you knew bankruptcy practice, and now you you've been such an eminent judge on the appellate court. As you reflect on this, what what parts of being a judge, or what aspect of being a judge, have you most enjoyed or found most meaningful? Well, one of my colleagues on the district court used to say that it was wonderful to be a judge because you woke up in the morning and your job was to do the right thing. It's really true. Uh, you work in the purest form of law. Legal practice you know, in a law firm you know, is wonderful. You represent your clients, but you're, you're advocating for something. But as a judge, you're really trying to, to do the right thing, to find the right analysis, and it's it's extremely rewarding, and you learn how your thoughts and your analysis can morph over time. And how, you, if you, when you have the opportunity to really think things through and study them, you you actually get there. 
And uh, I just find it so rewarding to to have this, you know, the luxury of being a judge. And our federal judges can work forever, and most of us do, uh, because we love it, because it's just such a, a rewarding experience. But I, I think this is an important point, which is that when, as a judge, you follow the law, and which is just is, is a different question that you ask yourself in the morning than, gee, what do I think, you know, in the abstract is the right thing here? Because right. uh, often you wouldn't know what the right thing is anyway. You haven't been presented with those materials or it takes you into a realm of philosophy or something of that sort. And um, I think for, for, for judges like you and, and me, Doing the right thing under the law was was very satisfying, and we had a sense of what our role ought to be. Right. Now, I probably should temper that. You know, saying do the right thing, and people would say, oh, well, I disagree with that. That's not the right thing. And, you know, judging isn't the popularity contest, nor is it, you know, you're supposed to test which way the wind is blowing in terms of popular opinion. As you point out, the right thing has to be the proper analysis under the law, reaching you know, what precedent and the rule of law would dictate. So I probably need to temper that, quote, right thing with, uh, you know, a little bit more uh, analysis or, or description, if you will. We'll come back to this topic in a, in, a, in a moment. But related to what we're talking about, at the same time that you were a judge putting on the black robe every day, y uniquely, you were also the first lady of Pennsylvania because your husband was was governor of, of Pennsylvania. And um, I can imagine that that was, it was challenging to wear those two hats or two robes or whatever, whatever you would call it. And that you probably had to make a lot of judgment calls about, gee, can I do this? Can I not do this? Um, and I'd, I'd just be interested in hearing what that was like. Because, you know, I, I don't think I know of another judge who played uh, two roles like that. At the same time, it was it was quite challenging. I I kept the ethics committee very busy, uh, but it, it yeah, happens that the, the the then governor of Kansas, uh, Kathleen, I'm forgetting her last name. Her husband was a magistrate judge, and he would call me and uh, say, "Now, now, Kathleen says I can do this." Yes, I said, "Yes, yes, Gary." Kathleen does say it, and Ed says that I could do this, but indeed you cannot, yeah. <laughs> because you, you, yeah. you know, the, the politicians say, "Oh, of course you could do this." Well, no, you you actually right. can't. Um, but it was it was really quite difficult, and I just learned the 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 mantra was, "When in doubt, say no." You know, just say, "No, I cannot do this." It, when in doubt, recuse from a case that could you know involve the Commonwealth. Um, so there was a lot of, of line drawing, but I, interestingly, I, I never had, I never had a problem because I, I, I always did say no instead of yes. Um, but it was, uh, difficult finding what I wanted to do as first lady because I was a judge. And when you are a judge, you're a judge 24 seven. But, uh, I decided that I would promote civics education in the schools as kind of my platform. Uh, it was not, politically charged. It wasn't a matter of policy as such, but we were working on uh, curriculum and trying to help the teachers find what, what they could do in the schools because um, civics education has not been at the forefront in the classroom because history and social studies are not tested on all these standardized tests that are 
being given in usually in the spring of the year. So from September to March, many schools are doing what's tested and not civics or social studies. So so we had kind of a, an uphill battle, but I, I love doing it. And uh, being First Lady gave me you know, a little bit of a bully pulpit uh, to, to try to, to make some strides in getting it back into the schools. Well, you evidently enjoyed it and thought it was important uh, and you, that you were making some progress because you and former Governor Rendell have now started the Rendell Center, which has its um, mission, the promotion of civics education, among other things. Can you talk about the decision to, to start such a center and, and, and what you hope to accomplish? Well, when we left Harrisburg, we had had eight years of this effort, uh, and the, the woman who was my uh, chief of staff in Harrisburg ended up really working on civics education for at least the last five or six years that we were there. So we kind of shrugged our shoulders and said, well, now what are we going to do? We can't waste all this that we've been doing, and it still is worthwhile. So we decided to start this nonprofit. Um, and Ed, who had not been all that involved, because he had other things to do as governor, um, went in it with me. And uh, uh, we have just so enjoyed working together. I know the Rendell Center in particular because you just held a conference on judicial independence and what it takes to preserve a fair and impartial judiciary. And you were so fortunate as to have Justice Kennedy as one of your speakers. What uh, inspired you to take on? Uh, this particular topic. Well, and I was especially fortunate to have one David Levy be the keynote presenter for the uh, for the day. Started it off. I really think that's why Justice Kennedy came at eight thirty in the morning and stayed the entire day, uh, and ended up being interviewed basically by by you, which was just fantastic. It was really a wonderful was, experience, uh, and available again on day. our website. Yes, great day. Um, well, I've realized, and I think you probably did too, as a judge, people don't really understand what we do. Um, they don't understand that we adhere to the rule of law, that that's the guiding force, and that being independent, not being you know, politically aligned, but being independent allows us to be fair and impartial and, again, do the right thing. Uh, you know, our federal system is wonderful because the, the president nominates us and we're confirmed by the Senate and we have our jobs for life. People think, oh, well, that gives you the ability to do whatever you want. Well, actually, it gives you the ability to do the right thing under the law and be, uh, you know, adhere to the rule of law and whatever it dictates. But it's not understood and it's not valued. It's not appreciated. You know, when you look around the world and countries where there isn't uh, the rule of law, where, where the judges are beholden to the king or the prime minister, whomever, who can you know, take them, uh, dock their pay or, or get rid of them, they have, there's corruption. And there's not the essential uh, consistency and predictability of the law that we have. So I think it's, it's difficult for people to understand. And once they understand it, I think they do appreciate it. Are you of the view that that judicial independence is under threat in the United States? And, and if you are of that view, in what way, what areas most concern you? Well, when political figures speak out and decry judicial decisions, I'm, I'm reminded of a 
senator back when the Chavo controversy was happening in Florida, and uh, he got on a talk radio show and decried the fact that the judges weren't doing the will of the people, to which we should say, well, that's your job, senator. That's not the job of the judges. And I think when people criticize decisions because they're not what they want the judge to have decided, uh, and maybe it's an unpopular ruling, um, and it's almost like intimidation, if you will. Uh, and it's difficult for judges to speak out. Uh, and I think, as you pointed out in your in your talk uh, at the symposium, we're probably so ill-equipped to speak out. We don't do podcasts all the time. We're we're not on public radio. We're, we don't write op-ed pieces because we just don't do that. And so this misunderstanding uh, of judges, you know, when they do something that's quote unquote unpopular, it's it's sad and it's it's dangerous. It really is. It's hard uh, to, to explain all these things, I think, to the average person because we don't take the position that that judges are uh should be insulated from from criticism americans are are free to criticize a judicial decision that they don't uh think is true to the law but that's our but that would be our point you know don't don't criticize the judge for the decision if it reached the correct uh decision under law then that's a that's a criticism of the law and there are other ways to address that through legislation primarily right exactly um so uh there is there is criticism on the other hand i uh, i think in most parts of the country the judiciary it does have the support of the people and have has the respect of the people and i i think in that respect um as you pointed out just a few minutes ago, we're very fortunate as compared to some other parts of the world where the judiciary is is often an ex, just an extension of the executive branch. Right, right. And, and I think don't people don't realize, here. no, and I think don't, people don't realize also that our economic prosperity, I think, is tied to the independence of the judiciary because businesses can predict the law and can follow the law because our law is consistent. And I think that really does impact the, the economic prosperity. I was reading the uh, Chamber of Commerce has come out with a, a white paper about why judicial independence really matters. Um, and it, it's, it's true. It really matters to our businesses. So I think our e economic situation uh, benefits from the independence of the judiciary. You know, uh, that's an excellent point. There's, there's very interesting work on this, both. Uh, historical and contemporary. So the World Bank and other entities like like the World Bank have these rule of law indices, and and it's very mm -hmm. important to them that a that the, that a country have a uh, an independent judiciary before it's prepared to invest in that country or make make right. low interest loans. And then right. historically, I know that you know there's quite interesting work on the origins of the Industrial Revolution, and and one of the Hypotheses that has been borne out is that it, in in England, where which was the first country to industrialize, that uh, the independence of its judiciary was very important to the to the markets. Mm -hmm. So that, that's I think a you know a, a powerful point. You know, on yeah. the flip side, uh, there's this issue of judicial accountability. Our judges should be accountable. And you just wrote, I think, just a superb piece 
uh, somewhat in response, or at least it was inspired by an article by uh, by Professor Stephen Burbank uh, at Penn Law, who is certainly one of the leading thinkers about judicial independence. He likes to pair independence with accountability, and you weren't so sure about that. Can can you can you talk about that a little bit? Because of course, judges have to be accountable in some sense. But what what is what does that mean? Yes. Well, part of his thesis was that the accountability runs to to people, um, to the people, to our representatives. And I don't tend to agree with that. I, I see, again, and maybe I hearken back to this too much, I see our accountability to the rule of law and to our institution. Uh, you know, as the judiciary, we are accountable to our colleagues. We are accountable to the rule of law and to the institution. I don't see that we're accountable to quote unquote people as in, you know, the, the people. We have accountability measures. Um, on the Court of Appeals, the fact that we sit in panels of three, we're accountable. And the fact that our opinions circulate to all of our judges on our court before they're issued, uh, the fact that we have ethics committees, uh, and we have a specific committee charged with taking on issues of disability of judges, uh, whether it's, you know, stability or, you know, some kind of incapacity. So we have things that keep us accountable and keep us in check. But the emphasis on accountability, to me, is a, a negative aspect that I just don't, I don't see. So I don't see the pairing of independence and accountability as being that strong, unless you are talking about accountability to the rule of law, which is essential and uh, and essential and important. You know, I think one of the other issues with accountability is that it can very easily be thought of as accountability at the ballot box, which is what our True. many of our state court judges face periodically when they yes. run for re-election, and that that. that aspect of our overall system is is problematic it's it seems like it's here to stay and we're going to have to find ways of working with it but um because the american people seem to want to elect their state court judges <laughs> i i say that yes, with they, a they, degree of sad sadness yeah they think it's the democratic way but unfortunately the people don't really know who they're voting for I have uh, friends who will call me and say, you know, whom should I vote for in this judicial election? Well, I say, you know, ask the Bar Association whether they're rated, um, you know, how they're rated. But th the people really don't know who these people are. And uh, and the people, they have to raise money. You know, the party will back them or not, depending upon the money they raise. So you get into office as a judge and you're ruling on a case uh, and maybe you have a retention election coming up. Uh, in fact, I have a friend who is on a county court in Pennsylvania, and uh, he tells me that when the other judges have a retention election in the next two or three years, the other judges who aren't up for retention take the tough cases so that they won't have to rule in a way that's unpopular. Well, that that shouldn't be. Um, and you wonder if you are going to have to face a retention election in six or seven years but you have an extremely unpopular case before you or one where you could, the rule of law would require you to rule in a way that is not popular. 
you've got to wonder. <laughs> you've got to know that that in your mind, kind of looking over your shoulder is the fact that that retention election is going to come at some point, and people are not going to be uh, not going to be happy. In fact, when Ed Rendell was governor, we would go to county fairs all over the state. There would be tables. Uh, one year, there was a huge outcry about a pay raise. In fact, Sandra Day O'Connor came to speak about the fact that the electorate should not throw out hundreds of years of judicial experience because of this one situation. But there were tables with petitions to uh, declare no on retention on, on judges. It was, it was crazy. So it's, it's a sad state of affairs for judicial independence, for sure, that, that, that we have elected judges. But the, the political forces in most states are too strong to change it. I think that's right. You know, um, we started with this topic, and, and, and we're still on it in a way, because it it's such an important topic, and that is the, kind of the relationship between politics and judging. It's sometimes said uh, by critics that the judges are, are merely politicians in black robes, and I, uh, I think you've, you've somewhat answered that this question, but uh, I take it you don't agree with that, and it would be it would be good just to to hear your your views on this. <laughs> Needless to say, I do not agree with that. <laughs> Needless to say, uh, but, yeah. but but I think uh, you know it comes about because primarily the Supreme Court, I think, um, because they're nominated by a president of a certain party, and very often when you write about a certain Supreme Court justice, that the, the tagline is nominated by, and therefore you know whether they should be, you know, liberal or conservative in their in their agenda or their rulings. But I think that's what what causes it. And I I think also the Supreme Court opinions, all these opinions, all although there aren't that many, uh, that are five four hot button topics, uh, and people attribute the rulings to to politics. But, you know, we're all products of our experience. Uh, and, you know, the experience of Sam Alito, uh, who was my colleague before he became Justice Alito, his experience was he was a prosecutor. You know, it was it any wonder that he's, you know, probably tougher on crime, uh, you know, and criminals in, in rulings than other people might be. You know, I was a bankruptcy lawyer. What, you know, where does that put me? But we're all product of, of our experiences, which dictate how we're going to look at something. Very few judges that I have come across have agendas or, or a political position. They may be predictable in their rulings because I've seen what they have decided before and how they think about a certain topic, but it certainly isn't agenda-driven or, or political. So I would, I would definitely uh, not be in favor of viewing judges in that way. It's a it's a interesting topic because we benefit from that experience, you know. Having that's why we have multi member courts, and it's great to have a prosecutor or a former defense attorney or a bankruptcy lawyer, right. people who exactly people who grew, who grew up in the West and people who grew up in the East. I mean, you you, right. you value that, and and I'm sure you've had the experience of of being persuaded by a colleague who who does have a different background. I mean, we all we've all Absolutely. had those experiences. Well, um, you know, your work on civic education, it, re it really resonates with me. And I think with 
many judges and former judges, there are programs that courts have around the, the country. And I, I'm interested if you have some thoughts about what, what judges at all levels in particular uh, can do about uh, public discourse and civics, civics education. Well, I think judges are so well positioned to help the citizenry understand our government. And we really need a lot of, a lot of more understanding than, than we're getting. Um, but we at, in the uh, courthouse in Philadelphia or right across from the National Constitution Center, we have an arrangement with them where when they have uh, classes come in, they contact us and we do what's called judge chats. And we will sit with the, the students at the Constitution Center for 50 minutes and talk about what we do and, and take questions. Um, and the, the teachers just appreciate it. I wish judges would reach out to schools and let the schools know I'm available to come speak uh, at, you know, to a class or at an assembly and, and answer questions about what we do and educate the students. We can do so much, and yet the teachers have no idea that the judges would be willing to do this. And there are probably some judges who say, listen, I'm not a social studies teacher. Don't, don't task me with this. But by and large, when, when I ask judges in our courthouse to, to be involved in our mock trial or, or, or to do the judge chats, they love it. Again, it gives back much more than the, the time that the judges have to spend doing it. Um, and at the Rendell Center, we have a number of activities, not just the literature-based mock trial, but we have uh, what's called the Citizenship Challenge. And uh, we have classes, fourth and fifth graders, submit essays on a different topic of constitutional significance. Um, and I get judges to come and, and judge when the, the top 10 essay winners have to come to the National Constitution Center and perform a skit. The teachers come and the parents come. And when I have a, you know, a whole group of judges who will come and judge the competition, uh, they invariably love it and just see how the kids and the parents and the teachers respond. Uh, and the kids get excited about it. Uh, the reason we, we are focusing on these grades it's interesting. I'll ask a fifth grader or something, and they'll raise their hand. They're anxious to speak. You do that to an eighth grader, and they've already moved on. They're in adolescence. <laughs> they have so much on their plate, and yet we wait to tell children about voting until they are either adolescent or in high school. And by that time, you know, they've, they've moved on. They're, they're not in the formative years anymore. And I find when we get these fourth and fifth graders, they're so excited to learn and uh, they're like sponges and, you know, teach them the importance of voting, the importance of jury service early on. And, uh, you know, they'll never forget it. So I think there's so many things ju judges can do if it just occurs to them to pick up the phone and call their grandchild's uh, teacher or, you know, their niece's uh, teacher or principal and say, you know, law day's coming up or Bill of Rights day's coming up. I'd be happy to come in and, and speak, you know, to your school. So we're at that point in the podcast where I'd like to ask you, as one of our great judges, to step back a bit and uh, take a big view in two areas. One about judging, which I'll ask you about in a moment, and the other is about our, our courts in general. So you, you've been a, a judge uh, at all levels. Uh, you chaired the Bankruptcy Committee of the Judicial Conference. 
Uh, you've served on the panel on multi-district litigation. You've seen big cases. You've seen small cases. You've tried cases as a judge. You've heard countless cases on appeal. How do you think our system is is doing, and where can it be improved? Well, I think the system is is doing well for those who can afford to be in it. Um, one of the problems with with litigation and with people's you know access to courts is how expensive it is. Uh, it really is extremely expensive for people to come into court. Um, I see individual plaintiffs who you know maybe they're on a contingent fee uh, basis with their lawyer whereby they if they recover something the lawyer gets something but otherwise the lawyer doesn't but but even then if they if they lose they can have to pay court costs it, it's just a shame to me that the cases that we see are probably only a fraction of the disputes that are out there and the things that need to be resolved um i don't know what can be done to to alleviate that there are terrific community legal services um, organizations throughout the country, but I, but I think it really is a, a dilemma. But I think the courts, by and large, are doing a good job. Our, our caseload is down, and I'm not sure if it's because of, of arbitration clauses, which are now you know, prol- proliferating in the in the commercial world. Um, I was speaking with Justice Souter uh, not too long ago, and he he volunteers to serve on the First Circuit Court of Appeals and was saying he was so surprised at the uh, number of cases they were seeing. It wasn't the the quality of cases that they had seen previously, and he thinks because of these arbitration provisions that are put in a lot of agreements these days, whereby the parties, usually individuals, waive their right to a trial or waive their right to to bring a class action, um, and even in employment contracts, um, so that that could be a reason we're not seeing as many cases, but um, I do think the system, the, ca- the cases we do see, I think we're we're moving them forward uh, fairly fairly quickly. Um, the, the fact that the Supreme Court has to decide their cases every year, I think, is a good one. Uh, perhaps we should have that in the courts of appeals as well. But uh, but I think by and large the courts are doing a good job. Uh, before all of our Great judges are actually just made by IBM and the other companies <laughs> that make mainframes and before machine learning takes it over. You know, you've known so many great judges. You're a great judge, a really wonderful one. Uh, well, you know, how would you describe the qualities of a, of a great judge? And, and is there anybody uh, that you feel comfortable sort of identifying as, gee, that person, uh, that judge has been uh, a role model for me uh, in the yeah. course of my career? Well, obviously, the, the qualities, you know, my son used to say, Mom, you're so judgmental. Well, that's, that is what I do for a living, so judgment is obviously a good thing. Uh, but, you know, fairness and uh, the intellect. But but I think also caring about people um, and understanding. I get back to understanding people's needs and kind of knowing where they live and knowing about people. And one of my the most influential judges in my life was uh, Judge Ed Becker, who was a former chief judge, uh, now deceased, of uh, our court. And uh, I only knew him for the nine years that before he, he passed away, but uh, he became a mentor to me. And uh, I was honored that I was one of the four people asked to, to speak at his funeral. And I, 
we had so much in common, but he was a mensch. He was a people person. Every secretary in the courthouse, he knew where they lived. Uh, he knew who their ward leader was. But, and he was an intellectual giant and received every judicial, national judicial award uh, you could have imagined. There was on the executive committee, the judicial conference. He was just such an amazing intellect, but he was a people person. Uh, and he cared about people. And I just think, um, you know, Senator Specter, when he nominated, when he gave a nod to someone to be a, a federal judge, he cared about their judicial demeanor and how they would be in the courtroom. Would they be courteous to, to the litigants and welcoming? Um, and it's an important characteristic. You know, the face of the judiciary, uh, shouldn't be these stern people who, um, you know, cut off lawyers and, uh, you know, are nasty as they're kind of portrayed very often in movies or television. They should be people who, who have empathy with the, the citizens before them. Um, I also, I often, as a district court judge, was concerned about my individual litigants who were before me, the, the person who said they were discriminated against in their employment, uh, the purple people who said, you know, maybe they were harassed in the workplace. Uh, the, the, the business world had not been good to them, and they needed for the courtroom to be good to them and to, to give them respect and to hear their story. Uh, I used to love to, to try to settle their cases and give them something. Uh, the judicial system, given the standards, you know, maybe they weren't going to succeed in their lawsuit, but, but maybe I could get them some respect or let them, you know, tell their story. So I think the understanding the human characteristic of people before you uh, is is really important. So, Judge Rendell, what a delight to talk with you. It always is. Thank you for joining always. me. This has been another edition of Judgment Calls. I'm David Levy. Thank you for listening. Judgment Calls is produced by the Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke University. Find us online at judicialstudies.duke.edu. Thank you.